0: How many people have been? How many people have been to I think conference before? Most. So you already know this, okay? There's a handful who are new. I tend to whatever book we're talking about. I tend to bring a whole pile of books which, to be honest, now Andy's here, you don't really need me to wave around. Um, But these are the books that I've used or have or am aware of or whatever. And I tend to just sort of give a summary of each of them for a few minutes so that you can find your... Some of you have read plenty of these, that's fine. But for many of us, this will be an orientation thing where you might find it helpful to... You think, that book's going to help me, that book sounds not like what I need, that's too basic, that's too advanced, or whatever. So in no particular order, I just wanted to walk through the ones that I've particularly used or found helpful or even found unhelpful. Um, I don't, <laughs> don't give them that much airtime, but there they are. So, as I say, in no particular order, um, the first book on Revelation, which I kind of bought big, heavy tome on it, um, Greg Beal's, sort of gigantic book uh, in the New International Greek Testament commentary series. To be honest, that subtitle sums up everything you need to know about the series. It's got rather more words than you think might be needed, which is sometimes true of Greg Beale's subtitles, um, but it is incredibly comprehensive and thorough, and I think it's the best interpretation of the book from an idealist perspective, In, a, in which we'll introduce those categories in a moment. But if you know what we're talking about, this might be a good book that you'd consult many of us may already have it um when i was taught revelation for the first time the person who was teaching me said this is the one you need to get and it still is 15 years on a a superb resource just encyclopedic um but very much from, from an idealist school it's excellent really helpful um Opposite end of the spectrum in terms of how much I've used it or found it helpful, but it's a smaller one, J. Ramsey Michael's little book on Revelation here. Um, so commentary I have, have occasionally dipped into, haven't used very much, but I just thought I'd put it out there for completion. But the reason I keep them here is so you can sn- sn- um, peer through them and sort of rummage around and see what I've noted or not. On the subject of things being annotated, um, this one really made me laugh because this is a commentary, the NIVAC series is great, uh, it's particularly written for preachers and i suppose trying to do the work of application for you a lot of the time craig keener is amazing is a wonderful scholar and a yeah fantastic theologian and interpreter but his commentary here is noteworthy both for the structure which gives lots of application but also for the fact that the person who used to own this commentary whoever they are has gone through it and for some reason crossed out every single occurrence of the word jesus and replaced it with the word christ and i have no idea why they have (laughs) And honestly, as I'm reading through, I'm thinking, what is the context here that they're doing that? It's very, very bizarre. But anyway, that's a little, a little bit of added value, um, or not, as the case may be. Uh, the first book of Revelation I ever worked through as a, as, in a, as a commentary, just going, I'm going to try and get my head around this book, um, is Robert Mounce's Book of Revelation. This series is super; it's probably my favorite whole series of New Testament commentaries, uh, the New International Commentary on the New Testament. But the volumes in it vary a bit, um, so I don't think there's any one commentary series that You know, nails every book. Um, But this is good, it's good and solid. It's premillennial, which, for amongst a number of these, which would, to varying degrees, wouldn't be. um, But this one is, and it's a very good statement of the case. It doesn't go into as much detail on Revelation 20 as you might want, but it's a a really good, solid evangelical commentary from a premill perspective, which is fascinating. And the Beast, which I'm afraid is, I think, both the most useful and the, by far the most expensive book on Revelation, which you'll know if you know me at all, you'll see it coming through, is Peter Lightheart's Double Whammy on Revelation. This, You'll see the influence of this, which I worked through in a lot of detail last year, and I actually used it in my devotions. Um, and again, you could come through and see all my scribblings and all the things that I felt God speaking to me as he browsed through the book. Um, I just think they are titanic and outstanding. They are quirky, and he would say that himself. He's almost deliberately written it that way. He's um, reading lightheart is like uh, letting off a firework in a downstairs toilet it 's just this sort of massive explosion of creativity and noise in a very small space that can make you feel totally exhilarated, which is what it does for me, but it can make some people feel completely overwhelmed with weird ideas and connections and they 're thinking yeah i don 't buy that um, i would I would like to hope that sometimes my preaching does the same thing, but some people it 's not everybody 's cup of tea and but these are just giants, but they are also very expensive. I imagine they will be. Do you know how much they are, Andy, over here? There you go. So very expensive for a book, okay? But so this is the kind of thing where you're going, I'm not just going to dip into that on my nightstand. But if you're going to preach through the book and you say, okay, I'm, yeah occasionally you spend money on a, a lot of money on something i guess some of you i know in fact one person said to me i'm coming to your conference because it's cheaper than buying these and i can spend three days hearing your distilled version of it i thought do you know what that's a pretty good marketing strategy so thank you for that but they, you can do, just have a little snoop i know you'd probably feel bad reading too much of the versions on the on the stand over there but if you want to have a look at mine they're here um most of you all know the bible speaks today series this is michael Wilcox's book on revelation again have a little snoop through it's Classic Bible Speaks today, really. If you know the series, you'll know what you're getting. Uh, Revelation, the new Tyndale volume from Ian Paul. Uh, Ian is a really sharp guy and has written a good, again, good solid in the Tyndale series. Quite big, actually, for a Tyndale commentary. Um, Quite thorough as this series goes. It's helpful. It's clear. It's. It will lay out all the issues, and probably, like on our, t- on our preaching team, this is the volume that I said to most of our preachers, this is the one that you will probably use to orient yourself in the issues um, of the ones that we had. So that might be a sort of first, first base for many of us. And then two which are of a slightly... then we're done. But two of a slightly different... Um, from a slightly different angle. Richard Borkham's book on the theology of the book of Revelation... This is a funny series. I don't quite know what to make of it. The ones I've read in it are quite different from one another and they, they don't really go through the whole book systematically at all. But what they do is to take various theological slices out of the book and run at them with a particular a sort of agenda or angle in mind that really illuminates the few things they draw out but doesn't answer every question you have on the book. That's not how they work. So you get a lot, of, if, you, if you know Richard Borkham, you'll get a lot of insight from it, but you won't, if you come to it going, oh, I wonder what he makes of the you know, the, the sixth trumpet or something, you you may very well not find anything like it in here. It's not that kind of a reference book. And then, probably the most, apart from possibly Lighthouse, probably the most beautifully written of all of the commentaries um, is, is, again, it's not really a commentary in a way, but it's a great sort of homiletic devotional book on Revelation, is Eugene Peterson's Reversed Thunder. If you know, you, you know Eugene Peterson can write. We probably, if we have heard of him at all, we'll know that. But he's, he's, the subtitle is The Revelation of John and the Praying Imagination. And I think if you're looking for a book that applies the vision of Revelation to ordinary, devotional, prayerful, pastoral realities, then Peterson's a great one to consult. Again, it's not a systematic treatment of the whole book, and there'll be all sorts of things you might not find in here, you might hope you would, but there's a huge amount of great stuff in here. So again, at any point you should feel free, just obviously please don't steal them, but at any point just feel free to come and Browse through. Most most years, people just spend breaks just browsing through, and obviously have a look at the bookstall as well, and there'll be plenty in there, which I hope will help you. That, I think, is all my introductory comments made. Am I? Is there anything I'm supposed to have said or done? Does anybody... I'm looking around. No one particularly... I don't even know who I'm asking. No, I don't think there is. Okay. So, you, I hope, have a a pack of notes which you might have either emailed or printed out, and I hope this is now going to do something powerful. Is this going to do? It is! Hallelujah. Okay, so the way we're going to, the way we're going to do this is uh, I'm going to spend this. We've got two sessions tonight. I say tonight, you know, this afternoon. But now until 5.30 and then from 6 until 7.30 and then we're going to have curry. Um, and probably we will not get out of the introductory, the overview section. In fact, I'm not planning to. I'd like us to do the overview stuff this, this evening because I think in some ways it brings a nice bookend to the structure if we get to the end of today and we've got a vague idea of how we're going to handle the whole book. But you're sitting in tables because we will do, If you, many of you have been before, we'll spend as much time as we can talking about this stuff together and engaging on our tables but also engaging with me and with other tables. Um, so sometimes we'll go through the sections quickly and sometimes we'll take a long time on a page. That's how we tend to do it. Um, but we're going to do the overview, really, stuff this evening, and then tomorrow we will spend probably the whole of tomorrow on the first and second visions. The second vision is much the longest of the four, and then the third and fourth we'll do on the Thursday. Um, the, when I even structuring it like that, you'll see, we'll come on in a few pages' time to defend that. I'm trying to defend that decision um, to structure them along those four visions. That will be familiar to some. Others of us will say, "I don't even know what you mean." First, second vision. What are we talking about? We'll come back to that in a little bit. But let's uh, want to have a look at the kind of... The first question you have to ask, I think, with Revelation, annoyingly, because most books in the Bible, you don't have to ask the question at anything like such an early stage. But I think you have to, before you start reading anything in Revelation, we have to ask what kind of a book it is. And I found, as we've been preaching through Revelation this whole term, and, uh, you know, so I... my. Typical Sunday this last term has been preaching one of these passages four times, running between different buildings in South London, preaching to people who, for most of them, it's the first time they've done a deep dive into Revelation in their lives. And for many of them, it's a book that they've already got all kinds of, well, I think many of them would say wrong ideas or weird ideas at the very least as to what Revelation means and how to handle it. And at the root of an awful lot of that, as you'll know if you've preached through, how many of us have preached through the book of Revelation before? We're hoping to, right? How many are here? Because we're about to <laughs> exactly. I don't understand. So, that's, but that's interesting. So, there's only what five or six people who've preached through Revelation here, okay? In a in 120, presumably mostly pastory, preachery types, and that that that's probably that's probably a revelation of itself in the sense. I'm not I'm not that surprised. I hadn't either. And what we've immediately found, and you won't be surprised at all, I'm sure it'd be true where you are, that the number of Im- people that come out of the woodwork, they go. Wow, I've, I've never thought of reading it that way. I just assumed that this was this and this was that. There's probably no book in the Bible where the voice of the God channel versus the voice of the local church is more disproportionately loud. And I think that's a reason for preaching it, rather a reason for not preaching it, which I'm sure you don't need me to persuade you of. But it is we, even though I came in prepared for that, I've been surprised at the things that some people believe. We had a woman in our church week one of the series, and I'm explaining how the book has to be written to the people in the first century or it doesn't make any sense and she says do you know I was taught in my previous church that I was the church in Laodicea because I was so lukewarm that's what I've been taught so she goes, there's, a, there's a person who thinks the church in Laodicea is her in our church and I'm thinking and she's been in the church for some time and you you can preach on any other book of the bible but people can still have a just bizarre view like that that they can hold to and it's not their fault it's what they've been taught and that we'll find a load of that as we go, I'm sure. But that comes down to a reading, a kind of reading of Revelation. And you, this is partly an excuse for me to use my little red dot, which I just think, you know, doing this all through the session. Um, But you, if you've studied, some of us will know this stuff really well. Some of you have taught this. um, So forgive me. Others of us, the the words might be a little fuzzy. We've heard them, but we're not 100% sure what they are. Um, But These four words will always pop up in the intro. Probably, I would think, nearly every commentary in that pile will use these words to describe the way you read the book. And we need to find out where we are. So I'll summarize what they all are, for those of us who aren't so familiar with it. And then I'd love us to talk about where you are. And we'll do a clapometer, which is my sort of God-ordained means of finding out what a group of people actually believe. Idealist readings of Revelation... I mentioned Greg Beale, the giant book I read first. Idealist readings of the book of Revelation basically are convinced that the imagery and the metaphor in Revelation is there to denote timeless truths that are spiritual in nature and that recur throughout church history. So the referent of the symbols in Revelation is not a particular historical period as such and it's certainly not a roadmap of the future. It's general spiritual principles for the way in which the spiritual world always works. And in that sense, it's like a boomerang. It just keeps coming back. No matter which generation you're in, there will be, of some form, a version of the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land and the trumpets and the bowls and the locusts and everything, in some ways will represent realities at work in your generation. And you still have to decode the symbols, but the symbols speak to every generation within an almost equal weight, I suppose. That would be one way of putting it. There are some great strengths to that view, which is that it's transferable to everybody. So that's the easiest one, to, in some ways, easiest one to preach to a degree, because you stand up and say, this is our generation, and as it is everyone else. It's evergreen. It doesn't go out of date. It doesn't tie you too closely to a period that used to be or that is not yet. You can see yourself in it. It fits the genre in the sense that it is a very, it's a very spiritual, metaphorical kind of book. Um, there's a lot of symbols in it that clearly have references to spiritual powers and, that, and it is uncoding them in many ways and it's kind of not too weird when it actually lands in practice when you preach an idealist way it doesn't, people aren't, don't usually leave worrying about what's about to happen next or freaking out about the symbols the weaknesses of it are that it's very elastic and very unclear so by applying to everywhere it risks applying to nowhere which is, you know, the Incredibles thing, isn't it? Everybody's special is another way of saying no one is. And you can get a little bit of that with idealism if you're not careful. It's like everything refers to everybody. Well, like, I'm not sure. how Does that help? I mean, or does that, do I just get lost? And in a sense, the book as a whole doesn't really have a shape if you're not careful because everything applies to the now. Um, and that means it's not very reassuring either because if it's saying, well, what's going to happen is the victory of God and the Lamb are going to come and then they're going to you know, vindicate the martyrs or whatever, you think... When? <laughs> like that, I, that doesn't, I don't. I'm not sure. I feel very reassured by that because hundreds of generations have seemed to have passed, and we still haven't seen it. So, and the soon, these things are soon to take place. They're about to happen. Completely has to be spiritualised away. If you use an idealistic interpretation, you say, yeah, that doesn't actually mean so it only means soon in the sense that Jesus is going to return to the earth soon. But every generation has lived with that question. But it doesn't reassure suffering believers that something will happen soon in their lives or in their worlds to bring deliverance. So there's a and by the way, they've all got strengths and weaknesses. So but that's I think the idealist. That's that's the upside of idealism and the downside. Futurists. In the futurist view, most of the text, not all of it, most of the text is about the events leading up to the end of all things and the return of Jesus Christ. What, when, where. It is, in that sense, can be like a timeline, and we'll show you an example in a moment, of the way in which people read the book in a futurist fashion. They break it up and they say, well, this bit is referring to that period, and then this is here, and we're here, and then this is going to happen next, and then that. And that's a futurist vision. The strengths of that are, and this this would be a, a big... Um, way of reading the book within the, the church i'm serving here a lot of people have naturally got that they've, they've picked it up from what they've been taught the idea that you, you've basically got a very literal interpretation you read through the book and you go yeah i can see it, it requires less waffle to get it to say what you might want it to say it seems to say this is going to happen and then that and then i saw this and then i saw that and then i saw that it looks like a a thread like a story that's unfolding in that way that would be a strength it's predictive is transferable to all subsequent readers because everybody can then read the story and go, oh, well, this is where the story is now and I'm here and now I know what's going to happen next. Yay. And it's hopeful because it's got a strong focus on the return of Christ making all all of those things right and you know what will happen after what will happen. Weaknesses are that as soon as you start getting into the timelines, you get yourself in a terrible muddle. And you do, because, because you've got what I do. We have seven trumpets and then seven bowls, or the seven seals first, or is the seventh seal somehow lining up with the seventh trumpet, but the seals are one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, one, two, three, five. It becomes a real tangle, and if you've ever seen someone try to draw a schematic of the book through that framework, it will often be very convoluted, which is, I guess, a necessary feature of that reading. Um, and it's weird. I mean, in some places, it is just weird, because if you say this is going to happen in the future, after a certain thing has happened in world history, then quite a lot of the events that are being described become pretty scary. You know, the the flying locust scorpions arrive, and you think, my goodness, is this... And as there are, you know, we had a question in our... I'm not entirely sure how facetious it was, but the Q&A evening we did in this room a month ago in our church, um, but somebody was saying, are, are they Apache helicopters? Or you know, Because, of course, what happens is if you think the whole book's in the future, then there are technological and geopolitical ramifications to the things that are being predicted. Don't have to be, but there typically are. And it kind of is inconsistent with the genre, which is that the genre is that of unveiling spiritual powers... And the futurist view doesn't do that so much. It, usually, it actually provides you with a slightly more linear, literal set of realities and also kicks the soon a long way down the road for thousands of years. So there are strengths and weaknesses. Preacherist view, and uh, we'll, I'll summarise the four and then we'll have a, have a bit of discussion and clapping. Um, the preacher's view, the main, that, this is the view that the main focus is on the events leading up to and including the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, or possibly, depending on how preterist and how have your cake and eat it you are, the fall of Rome, perhaps. That's, the, that's a very late date for it, uh, in fall of imperial Rome in the West. Um, and so a preterist view, you know, the, the sort of full-on preterist will read everything in Revelation as leading up to and then culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem until Revelation 21, new creation. There are a handful of people who say that's about, the first century as well but that we're going to i'm going to marginalize that because it's wrong um but other than that you know but there are quite a lot of people who would say everything really up until revelation start of revelation 20 is about the first you know 40 years of the church um and that's and you might go okay on revelation i can sort of say oh hang on a second you're saying the return of jesus on a white horse is is an event in the first century and some of these guys will go, "Yeah, I am saying that." And then you go, well, "What does that do with Jesus' predictions of his return? Oh, yeah. And you, get, you throw Tom Wright in there, and then everybody gets very overexcited about, "Oh, do you believe in a second coming All that?" But all of that stuff becomes an issue if you're a preacherist. The strengths of that are that it's anchored in the first century. That's the biggest strength is that this book makes sense to the people for whom it was written. That's a big plus. And it fits the genre to some degree as well because it's unveiling the spiritual powers at work in the first century. It's reassuring to them because it says, I'm coming soon and he's going to come and fix things. And it's not too weird when applied to specific symbols because the beast is Nero or whatever. The weaknesses are you have huge dating problems when you start trying to map it onto the events of the first century that actually happened. If you've ever tried to figure out who the ten horns of the Roman Empire are and the ones that are going to come, and then there's going to be a seventh, and then there's going to be an eighth that was and is not. And I mean, you just, again, you get in a horrible tangle, and they're not easily transferable to today. So you preach this way, and people in your church are going, What's this got to do with me? No, it's all about the first century church. I don't understand. Um, and it can dilute future hope because by placing so much of its focus in the first century, it removes the power of seeing what's going to happen in the future. By the way, I hope this is making you all feel really glad you came. They're basically all wrong is kind of what it sounds like, but we will, we will come to that. Um, and then historicist, which is, sounds a little like futurist, but is markedly different in an important way. Futurist is saying this all occurs in the future, and the vast majority of it is still in the future of us. Whereas historicist says, actually, this book unfolds in a way that sort of echoes and in many ways predicts the the evolution of and growth of the Christian church. So church history fits into the historical system, fits into the majority of the book of Revelation. So it is a description of the whole period of church history, whereas futurism is really starting in the future from now. And that from the first century to today, you can, again, people will debate where we are in the story, but we're somewhere in there. The strengths of that, again, it's fairly literal and it's uh, predictive and it's transferable to every generation and it's reassuring because what is about to happen next will give you confidence. You know, I know I'm here, but that's going to happen. Weaknesses are it can be indecipherably confusing as to what exactly goes where and, of course, every generation does it differently. So if you're reading historically and you're in the Reformation period, you're going to go, oh, well, of course, that period there was the Avignon Papacy. Whereas you and I are going to do it and we're going to go, well, the avenue on paper is not really my issue. I think that period there is the Second World War or the EU or goodness knows what. But people, you know, you're going to map it onto different symbols according to where you are. Um, And it's also not anchored in the first century. Much of the book, were that to be right, would not make much sense to a suffering Christian somewhere in West Asia. So basically, they've all got some strengths and they've all got some weaknesses. I'm doing my best to give the best of both, although you may well already be able to guess where I land, but it would be interesting to hear where you land. So I just wonder, could we... Well, let's do the clapometer first and then discuss it for a moment, second. If you you would say, I know that all of you are going to go, well, I've got the best of all worlds and I'm sure everyone has, but just in case you haven't, pick one of the four quadrants as the primary lens you use and right, so you just got to nail the colors to the mast. Some of you, I've preached through it and we did that consistently. Some of you, my goodness, they all sound awful, but I'd probably that's the least awful. But pick one and then clap for it when we name the particular thing, okay? So, how many people, based on that assessment, would say the one that I find most naturally fits the way I would generally read the book is idealist? Okay? How many would say futurist? How many would say preterist? And how many would say historicist? Okay. Now that is, okay, that is a helpful exercise. Now, could you now turn on your tables? Kick that around for a moment. Where are you now? Why? How thought through is that? Is it you've just swallowed it from somewhere? Is it, no, I'm I'm pretty convinced. How strongly do you hold that conviction? Okay. So you're not going to imagine have resolved that, um as quickly as that obviously you have to start somewhere and this is where I you have to introduce the categories not so much to try and convince people now which one is right I don't think that's the best way of doing it but to introduce the kind of major framework so that as you begin speaking and exploring the book you can do it mindful of you've been honest about a decision you've already made that's why I'm doing it it's not because I think you can make an objective case for one or the other I think the only case you can make is that of you you read through, expound, write through, or preach through the whole book, and at the end of it, people go, "Yeah, that made more sense than the alternatives." That's the only I think that's all you can do. Um, I don't think there's a sort of knockdown argument. I'll try and make the best argument I can from the very beginning of the book in a moment. But I think as you, I just so I'll, I'll be clear where I am because at least you'll need to know that, and you'll probably pick it up quickly anyway. But I would be sort of. F- Close together, two-headed monster, two-headed beast, I suppose you could say. Uh, but the leading leading edge for me would be Preterist, but quickly followed by idealist, uh, that, as I'm reading it. Okay, um, which is my attempt to have your cake and eat it. But there are, but but to me the logic is that every pretty much every symbol in the book, with the exception of the new creation, is. Would have originally have been read as applying to i 'm not proving this now i 'm just stating what I think and we 'll work through it to see if i 'm right um, but pretty much every symbol in the book would when originally read have been read to apply to people in the first in first century West Asia, and therefore that the major reference of the first thing to read into any symbol is what would this have meant originally to the people living through it in West Asia, and that would have meant mostly it was referring to events of the first century in my view um, that means you have to date it that way and you have to apply symbols that way but that's I think the cost of doing that is lower than the cost of doing other things so I read it exegetically I'm a really mostly a preacherist but as soon as I become a preacher I become an idealist because I'm also saying this is not only the word of God to them this is also the word of God to us and although I think John meant that I think what John has seen does apply and does reverberate like a boomerang to every generation. And in the providence of God, the structure of evil and the structure of good and the way in which the gospel confronts evil and the evil tries to squash the gospel and God vindicates the righteous, that actually plays out in every generation in different ways. And so in that sense, as soon as you stop to preach it, I think you almost have to become an idealist to some degree in order to apply it into your own, certainly if you've got a preterist background, you have to apply it to your own generation. And so I just asked, interestingly, our, our team said, what do you think? We never, we never sort of formally said this is the box we're in, but as you've listened to the series, what do you think we've done? And they said, yeah, a mixture of the top two, but actually they, they said, I think idealism's come through more clearly in what's been preached, which I'm kind of not surprised by because that's, that's really the way in which it sticks for real people. But I suppose if you put, you know, put a gun to my hand and said, do you think the beast is primarily nero or primarily the structure of evil in every generation i'd say i think it's primarily nero i think that's what they read it and thought it meant but of course that has huge affinities for every generation as we go through and we'll come don't worry we'll meet the beast later in person in fact he's gonna i, t- I said there's gonna be a special guest that's who it is and nero redevivos is he's coming sorry um so that that's where i am that, now that's not to again that that doesn't that doesn't make a positive case for it at all? That's we don't. are not, not going to do it like that. We're going to the proof of the pudding's in the eating. But that's where we, that's that's where I am. And I think one of the things that might help early on in that respect is just to look at the question of genre from the way John describes his own book, and then I think to map that onto the different ways of reading it. So if you read the first. We're going I my hope is to read all 22 chapters of Revelation through the course of the next three days, just on the basis that John says, you are very blessed if you read it aloud, and you're very blessed if you hear it. And it's good to hear the Word of God read, but particularly, I think, in many ways, this book is the one that comes with a promise. So I'm going to read the first uh, 11 verses now, and just see the shifts in genre that take place as John introduces his book for what it is. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it for the time is near." Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And the thing to, I, think I just want to comment on there really is just notice the number of different kinds of style of writing John says he's using in 11 verses. And this is Ian Paul's analysis. I think it's really helpful from his little Tyndale comments. You just Look, verse one, the apocalypse, the apocalypsis, the revelation, the unveiling, the unmasking, the disclosure of Jesus Christ. That's a, as emphatic a statement as you could have that we are reading an apocalypse. That is a kind of Jewish literature that was very common and popular then, and no one has written for about 1,800 years, which is why we find it confusing. But in, I, when I was preaching on this, I used the analogy of like the pantomime as a kind of performance that people... Most of us in this room have been to see and is very familiar in our culture, but if you go anywhere in the world that is not Anglo-influenced, a pantomime will seem like the most bizarre experience imaginable. They just don't have a framework for it. So you've got a Russian friend who gets, suddenly lands in London and says, hey, let's go see a pantomime. They've never witnessed Britain before. It just makes, oh, why are the men just as women, the women just as men, The story like, oh, who the heck is buttons? It just doesn't make any sense because the genre is familiar to us, but in most cultures it doesn't exist. Apocalypses are like that. And Jewish people in this period of history use them a lot, and we don't, so it's it's foreign to us. But that's a pretty emphatic statement. We are dealing with an apocalypse, a the Greek word apocalypse is an unveiling, a revelation. Then goes quickly into a benediction, a blessing. Blessed is the one who, which is a feature often of a letter or even of a public proclamation, which is what happens when you read it aloud. Then it's very obvious it's an epistle, right? John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace it's interesting to me that John and Paul both wrote seven letters to the churches. Which I just wrote to, sorry, wrote to seven churches rather than seven letters to the I, just, I quite like that. It's just sort of a nice sort of biblical symbolism of, oh yeah, seven churches. Yeah. I wonder if there's any, I think there probably is something in that, but it's not something I'd particularly noticed until I studied it. So the, uh, that's obviously an epistle. And it looks, That, to be honest, you wouldn't be surprised if that was the opening line of a letter. Just a straight letter. Then you have a doxology, a sort of outburst of praise, which can fit, of course, with a letter, but it's a change of genre in a deg- to a degree. It's not classic letter writing. Then he comes back to a po- very apocalyptic language. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Then he goes into a prophecy form, really. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. So he's, you know, I don't think he's putting words in God's mouth, but he's writing as reporting the speech of God. That, that line could come straight out of Isaiah. And then he jumps back into letter. I, John, your brother and partner, I was then told to write this letter to these churches. And that's just in the first 11 verses. And you'll, you track through the whole book, you'd see plenty of it. And I think that helps us because it suggests that probably a one-size-fits-all answer on genre isn't the best approach. We need some sort of mishmash. And I think the mishmash that you can, in that sense, use is to see Revelation as an apocalypse and a letter and a prophecy. That we read Revelation as an apocalypse, in the sense that it's a revelation from God that peels back the curtain on the spiritual world and shows us the powers at work behind the world you can see. It's like peeling back a, like the, the curtain of a stage and saying, "You've seen the play. Now look. Let's remove the curtain. You can see the actors and the stagehands and all the tech and everything behind it." So it's a it's an unveiling. It's an un, I often say revelation is an X ray, not a crystal ball. It's a, a sort of penetrating view into the inner reality of something that sees through the thing you can I can see, flesh, and shows you what's the substructure underneath. But it's not a gazing thing for the future. Now, obviously, I'm assuming there that I'm right that it's to be read as an idealist preterist, not a historicist futurist. But if I am right, that's a good illustration of the principle. And I think, in that sense, because it's an apocalypse, you have to read Revelation to some degree as an idealist. You have to see it unmasking the powers and exposing the structure of good and evil in every generation. But it's not just an apocalypse. It's also a letter, which means it's an epistle to a specific group of believers. In oh, people differ on this. I think this is written to real seven, seven real churches. In fact, I think it's pretty clear from the introductory three chapters that they are, that they were actually believers like you, but, you know, probably a little shorter, um, who are going to read these, read these letters and see it. This is speaking to me. I live in Ephesus. This is a letter to me at our church. And because of that, you have to read the book to some degree, like a preterist. You have to read the book and say, what would this have meant to somebody reading it in Laodicea or in Smyrna in the first century? And if it doesn't make sense to them, you got it wrong. And that interesting when I did the opening message in our series here, probably that was the thing I said that, That set the time for the whole series the most. I didn't know it would, but so many people said, oh, I never really noticed that because what it helps with is the people who, and I'm assuming broadly that we're not getting most of our theology from the God channel, but the people who have got a lot of theology from the God channel, which people in my church and probably yours have, the thing that quickly makes them go, oh, that doesn't quite fit, is when somebody says, this is the EU and that's the state of this and that's Russia and that... In some ways, it's hard to explain why it's wrong, except to say, would that have made any sense to someone reading it in Smyrna? And people can very quickly go, you know, wouldn't, how could that possibly be America? There was no America for another, well, 17 or 1800 years. There was no Russia for another 1,000 years. It can't be that. That doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to say to the modern world or politics, but it does mean that the primary referent of the symbols has to make sense to first century believers in what's now Turkey. And so we've got to read it in that sense as a letter. But we also read, of course, Revelation as a prophecy, as a message from God that calls for repentance and obedience based on what who God is and what he's going to do because the time is near. And in that sense, you would say, is there perhaps a futurist historicist element in there? Now, I personally don't think that that is best understood in the context of the entire church age, I think it's, be- or even at the very end. I think it's better understood as what's future for the readers, as you'll already have picked up. But... I think that you could still got to read it. This is a prophecy as well. It's not just an apocalypse or just a letter. It's all three of those things. And so to me, the question of genre is best approached by... You know, And I would, I would honestly recommend it. If you're preaching through Revelation, week one, tell people why you're going to interpret it. No, don't you, I, I wouldn't use language like preterist on a Sunday. come on earth are you talking about? It's hard enough to get them to understand Revelation without making it more complicated. It's a complicated book. But you, what you do do is say something like, this is a, it's a letter. It's got to make sense to them. And it's an apocalypse. It's an unveiling, an unmasking. It's got to make sense. In that sense, you'll speak to the power of evil in every generation. So that's, I don't know, that might be... To me, but I, I just think there's strength to bringing both of those flavors through without, I hope, throwing under the bus every insight of futurist and historicist interpretation. But I think in the end, you are going to... Is the beast... Is it meaningful to speak of the beast as the Pope or Donald Trump or Hitler or whatever? And I think it only in a very, very... <laughs> I'm not going to say this of all of them, but only in a very, very derivative sense that I'm, you are at some point going to have to say... The beast is this person, or the beast is simply a symbol for evil in every generation. But you can't, in the end, you can't say it's Nero and Hitler and Trump and the medieval Pope and the ninth century warlord who was trying to destroy the... It can't be all of them. Or if it is, it's only all of them in a very general spiritual sense rather than that the prophecies actually refer to that individual. So that's how I'd kind of come up with the question of, of genre, and try and then defend the way in the framework I'm going to use for interpreting the whole book. Now, I've now, having done that, I'm now going to summarize the way in which the book, whole book hangs together, depending on the framework you use. And I hope that this will put some, some again, some of us this is familiar, some of us it's very new, um, some probably somewhere in the middle. This is not the, it's, a, it's very pixelated, but I actually did a lot of search. You, you, you Google overview or timeline revelation. Um, and then just go to Google Images. It's kind of fun. Right? There's there's a lot of whoa, deep weird. Um, but this I felt was actually, although the, as a schematic, was a very helpful summary of a futurist view. It's not very beautifully laid out, but that's not the that's not the point. Um, and this would summarise to me very well what a you know a garden variety futurist interpretation of the book would look like. So that for whatever reason, the age of the Gentiles is included and started with the fall of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar at the very start, 605 BC. Um, and that's significant because it's distinguishing the first fall from the second fall. Um, the cutting off of the Messiah, which is re- referred to in Daniel 9, uh, appears as quite a significant, and Daniel 11, I think, uh, appears as kind of a significant moment in the, in the futurist schema. And obviously, the fusion of Daniel and Revelation is often what gives the impetus to that interpretation. And the cutting off of the Messiah is thirty AD or thirty three, whatever. Then you have Pentecost, and that begins the church age. And but mostly Revelation is not speaking to this period at all. In the futurist view. Right? The future the, the the Revelation one to three is addressing the church age, but other than that, the rest of Revelation's in the future. So we're not gonna we don't get any when nobody is living in Revelation seven now from this under this interpretation. Now, I, my view is we are, but that's with this interpretation, that's not how it works. And then, of course, you have the, the second fall of Jerusalem by Rome, 70 AD, through to Israel becoming a nation again on the 14th of May, 1948, is the age of the church, and then at the very end of the church age, Israel is a nation, and then at the end of that period, you have the rapture, which, I, again, I don't actually know exactly where in Revelation... The rapture could be read in a number of places, but I think you have to read it in rather than read it out. But from a futurist point of view, that's obviously, under the Daniel interpretation, that's significant. Then you have seven years of tribulation, and that seven years is what almost all of Revelation is about, Revelation 4 to 19. All the, you know, the, the appearance of the Lamb and the throne of God and the bowls and the seals and the trumpets are all about that period. Then you have the millennium, which is, about, which is Revelation 20, and then you have eternity, which is you'll be pleased to know where I agree with them. Um, but uh, just in case you think, oh gosh, does he think that we're already in? And then I, <laughs> I live in, you know, we're serving a church in Lewisham. And the new creation is already here. Um, but you, some of you might be more skeptical. So the, the futurist structure looks roughly like that. And that's pretty representative. That most of Revelation is about a period of intense suffering and tribulation will come upon the world, but not come upon the church in the future. Not all futurists read it that way, but these days a lot do. Okay, so that's a... Anybody got any clarifying questions? Not as in... Yes, Luke. What happened in 2008? <laughs> 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 oh, sorry. Do you know what? I hadn't even noticed it. <laughs> do you know what? I am going to have to go back... Because obviously the way he structured it has blocked out the crucial word, which is the death of Luke Daviditis. Do you hear know that? I have no idea. I didn't, Joe, I didn't even notice it. I'm assuming that he, when he first did this and put it online, that was the... Yeah, I assume. Although it's a little unclear as to why you would need to put that on a chart, right? Like, I know what the date is. Like, and it's... No, I hadn't even noticed it was there. Thank you, Luke, for your eagle eye, as ever. Any other clarifying questions of similar importance? Okay, Yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think P- because Porson is a, a pre millennialist, but I think would read the book with some historicism, some futurism, and some idealism. Um, but I haven't gone through his revelation his overview of the whole book of Revelation. I think Porson has, most of the stuff he's written on it has been from the point of view of systematizing eschatological teaching in the Bible as a whole. And that's where I've, so I've read his, his book, When Jesus Returns, is like a thorough treatment of all of this stuff. So he's definitely pre-mill. So he sees a lot of these things as referring to the future. But I don't think, he certainly wouldn't go in for a seven-year tribulation in the future that's the whole of the rest of Revelation. Um, so I I think he would mix and match a bit like I'm trying to, but in a different way. But for him, his, his pre-mill reading would be the more dominant line rather than which school of thought he uses. I haven't read his Unlocking the Bible and Revelation, though, so I don't know if he might have been clearer than that. I just haven't read it. Okay. So, historicist. This is, I, this is a much more attractive graphic, but that doesn't mean it's true. Um, and that is the, that's the alarming thing, isn't it? Um, because otherwise just by doing a, choosing a better font, you make your view look more plausible. Um, but I quite like—I actually really like—the image here of the main stage and the choir loft. I don't buy it, but I like it. Um, it makes me mo- makes me want to believe it a bit more. But what's good about this is it—it it separates out, I suppose, three things: that the unfolding sequence on the stage, which is. There's seven letters, and the seals, trumpets, angels, bowls, and then obviously the big stuff at the end. But it separates out that, layer one, from the interludes in the choir loft. And a lot of people get very interested about interludes in Revelation. This is the plot, then there's an interlude. And for some interpreters, Revelation is 60% interludes. I find it a little bit strange. It seems to break the narrative flow so much that I think if you're having to use interludes all the time, it shows that your narrative structure is not quite holding together because you have to keep putting things in large brackets to make sense of it but the quail thing i think is quite clever and then they unfold there but then there's a third level which is that the message of the little scroll is clarified as being the content of chapters 12 to 14 and i actually think that's right we'll get we'll make sense of that when we get there or at least we will attempt to make sense of when we get there but this is quite nice because you'll see in a moment you'll see a different historicist graphic that will look a little bit more lurid and weird, and you'll see how it might look in real life, because this, of course, has not attempted to peg any of these to specific periods in history. But as an overview of the, let- of overview of the book, it's, it's not bad. The major sections of the book make the holds together. The challenge comes, I think, as you'll see in a minute, when you start mapping that onto dates, which in the end is what the historicist is going to do, because that's what the view is trying to achieve, is to map out how church history looks given Revelation. This is the one I'm referring to here. I would now say, can it, the, the, the cloud bubble is, can anybody guess what historical progression these particular dates represent? So you may not be able to guess what happened on the somethingth of June 2008, but can you make sense of what these dates have in common? Um, and I'd love you to just have a little, you, know, you can have a look on your table in a moment. But this is a historicist reading of the structure saying really what happens is, this, you, you'll see here what the, the challenge of historicism is, is that you read? If you're going to get a sequence, you say, well, the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl are very similar to each other. So you have to decide is it a sort of linear sequence, or is it that you get one, two, three, four, five, six, and then seven is kicked into the future, and then you get the next one, two, three, four, five, six, and then another one, and then the sevens all come together at the end? Because, of course, if you don't do that, you find yourself in a very odd situation where you're in chapter 6 and 7 and the entire heavens and the earth seem to have disappeared. And everyone's crying out, oh, the wrath of the Lamb has come and who can stand? And everything's crumbling and collapsing. And then it starts chapter 8 as if nothing's happened and we carry on with the world. And then the same thing happens in chapter 11 and the same thing happens in chapter 16. It just feels odd. So what often happens is people say, no, there's a structure, but it's sort of intensifying. One, two, three, four, five, six wait, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, wait, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, wait, ba-ba! You know, that's the kind of way it seems to work. And in musical terms, you can sort of see how that might, might work. But I wonder, just anybody, any table here going to take a guess as to what those historical sequences might represent? Yeah. Sorry? Death of okay, so the death of Domitian through till what? Constantine and the particular... The Sorry? Yeah, it's actually it is just a few years after that, but it's the I think they mean the convening of the Nicene Council. I think they mean the Nicene Creed. I think is what. So they, the distinction there is between Rome in its opposition to God and Rome in its seeing the light. So what's 1789 and 1790 got to do with it? French Revolution. What's that got to do with it? Sorry. Secularism, yeah, is basically to do with the the, Euro, the European project, and basically it's various layers of Rome. So it's Rome in trying to destroy the church. It's then Rome in trying to establish the church in its, you know, fallen, dreadful Roman Catholicism, um, because obviously, down with the Catholics. And then it's Rome in its attempt to sort of secularize everything, and then through to Armageddon, and then in the millennium it'll it, it'll be glorious, you know. New Jerusalem, new Rome, new everything else. So it's a, it's a sort of, it's obviously quite a European way of reading the history of the church, but it's just an interesting way of mapping the dates and that's one person's way of doing it. And obviously this is part of the challenge is almost no matter which way you do it, you're going to end up looking like you're reading history from where you are and it wouldn't have appeared anything like the same to a historicist in the 14th century or the 7th century, whatever. It doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong, but that's often what will happen. Um, so that is effectively to read the book Structurally, as a sequence, this graphic, which is much the most beautiful graphic, but again, will make it seem like it's plausible, which isn't, doesn't necessarily mean it's right, is more, sees the book more like a sort of round and round we go. You know, it's a sort of, you've obviously got introduction, God's throne in heaven, God's throne, new creation, Jesus returning, so that's all clear. And then the bit in the middle, which is where all the confusion comes in, we're really seeing we're recapitulating the story over and over again. And a lot of people will naturally read Revelation like, it's a series of slices through the history. It's a series of ways of telling the story of the church age, but it's not sequential and you're not supposed to map it. And that's, that's when you read Revelation, you have to decide and you will naturally find yourself doing one or other of those things. I expect. Now, despite the, despite the fact that I don't read it historically like this, I actually do see Revelation more like a sequence. So I do see the story as unfolding and heading in a direction. I don't think it's just going round and round, the circles. And we'll, again, we'll see how that works as we go through it. But, um, so the one with the nicest graphic isn't always right in my view, but they always feel like they are. Um, and then this is no graphic at all, um, but this is Peter Lighthart, and he's decided he's not gonna, he doesn't need graphics. Um, but this is a very bold preterist take okay I don't think I mean maybe probably none of us will agree with all of this but this is lighthearted is sorry oh sorry is it moved in your notes page 11 apparently in the notes I don't know why that's in a different place there I'm sure it'll be my fault but I don't know why it's happened Um, but this is this is a very bold preterist take this I'm going to be really nail my colors the mask this is what I think is going on in the book lightheart says Jesus unveils himself to John and dictates messages to the angels of the seven churches of Asia. A crisis is coming, and soon, and Asia set between Rome and Jerusalem will feel the walls crushing in from both sides. Churches need to be ready, and Jesus sends love letters to stir the angels and their churches to zeal and faithfulness. That's not too controversial. Chapter 4, John sees the Lamb ascend to heaven, and it's really chapter 5, and initiate the mission of the church by opening the seals on the book of his coronation. So this is the opening of the seals in Lighthouse View is the beginning is the, the ascension of Christ and then the commissioning of the church. The end is about to happen, but it's arrested in mid-eschaton by the announcement that God wants more martyrs. Now 144,000 from Israel are sealed for martyrdom as the Lamb calls out the red horse of trumpeting angels to set brother against brother, mother against daughter, bringing Egyptian plagues on land, sea, rivers, and sky. Demons are released from the abyss and beaten back by an army more terrifying than demons, yet no one repents. This is all the first century. As the trumpets wind down, John eats a book and begins to prophesy. It's the black horse, depleting and preserving. John prophesies that Satan's ready to launch a fresh attack on the saints, forming his own Jew and Gentile new covenant to attack the church and overcome it. It works all too well. More martyrs are made, more martyr blood is spilled. What Satan doesn't know is that this blood will be turned against him and his cronies, used as evidence in the Lord's case against him, poured out on the harlot city Babylon and the Oikumene, which... It's where we get our word economics from, but it's the, the world at the time, effectively, the, the structure of the world, to finish the vengeance that God promised. Satan attacks, but the lamb and his witnesses absorb the attack and turn it into victory. Now a rider on a white stallion, so this is, that's all taken place in the first century, and the fall of Babylon, in his view, then is in the fall of Jerusalem. Now a rider on a white stallion, the lamb goes a victory round before the kings, sends an angel to bind Satan, and places the martyrs on thrones for a millennium, which is the age we're in now, according to his reading. The heavenly sitter of martyrs descends to earth and takes root until the final judgment when the new heaven and earth will come to completion. And Satan and death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire and those written in the Lamb's book live in deathless joy forever. So that, basically, the pier in the middle is between Pentecost and the fall of Jerusalem. That's the bulk of Revelation and that's how it maps out and he uses the four horses as a way of describing that. Now, maybe somebody will go with him on every particular. Probably not. I imagine most of us wouldn't go on. either going to quibble with a bit or with all of it. But that's a very, the good thing about this is that it says, this is exactly what I think is happening. I'm not going to hide behind, well, it's got to be relevant to the first century, but I don't really know why or where this is going. This is what I think. And I, I respect that, even if I don't always agree with it. So that would be a preterist reading. So most of the action of Revelation is done by AD 70. And you only really get the, the church age in chapter 20 even the victory of Jesus on the white horse is referring to events in the first century in that reading Okay, Mm -hmm. strokey beard Okay, so I wonder before we turn to the last page given that sort of overview is anybody feeling and the comments I made myself about how I read it is anybody feeling like they are further strengthened in their view further loosened in their view just a whole lot more confused than they were Uh, yeah so just on your table just Think through that and say any, any, anybody moving, anybody going. Oh, well, actually, I, if that's what it means, then I'm more here. Or, gosh, I'm glad I didn't go there. Or whatever. Any okay? Just where are you now? Anybody moving? Anybody shaking? <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> okay. Anybody? Anybody can put the hand up. Anybody already saying? Uh, I, when I came in here, I was sort of the first clapometer I was here but I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking my position. Anybody, had that? Anybody already had that experience about something? Somebody, someone else has said, or something that you've seen up here. Anybody rethinking the box that they're in from the clapometer? Hands up. Yeah, a smattering. Most people are still pretty happy with where they are. Most people don't know enough to know whether or not they're happy where they are, but they're going to hang in there and see what happens. Yeah, that's always the way. Okay, here's my... Here's my unveiling. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so this is my, this is my, my page of joy. Um, this is everything I know about Revelation in one page. Um, and I was a management consultant before I did this, and this is, the power, this is the PowerPoint template. Basically, I always joke with our guys that the only thing really management consultants do is they take information you've just given them and turn it into a chart, and that's basically what I did um, with Revelation. But I do quite like it. I'm quite pleased with it. I feel like it's got... The best of all worlds, and I'm going to take questions in a minute, so you can show me all the ways in which it's wrong. But the the key thing about this is that basically across the top you have four visions, and down the side you have groups, lots and lots of sevens. Okay, so it's a four by seven layout, and this is why the pointy stick is so helpful, right? So we're going to move horizontally first, okay? And I'll spend ten minutes explaining this page, although you might be might think it's common sense. But um, so the 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 key to the way I'm reading the book here is to see four visions as, and the key textual markers in the book as being the four times that John says, and I was in the Spirit and I saw. That's the way John tells us, I think, to read the book. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in the island of Patmos while I was on exile, in exile, and that is vision number one. He goes, I was in the Spirit and this is what I saw. And then, vision number two, which is huge across the middle of the book. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne standing in heaven, or an open door in heaven. And that's much the biggest one, and the complex one. We'll come back to it. But that's the second time he says, I was in the Spirit, and I saw, or and behold. Third vision, he carried me away in the Spirit, and I saw this great harlot, and a beast, and all these, all that kind of chaos at the end, right? And that's a vision in which he is in the wilderness, Um, That's where he says he is as he's reading it, as he's uh, explaining it. And then the fourth vision, which just because of making the text work, I had to do running down, but the point is this is vision number four, is he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he said, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And those are the four big visions, and in each of those four big visions, look at the bottom of the page... Something is unveiled. There is a clear focus of what is being apocalypsist, or what is being disclosed or revealed or unmasked. In the first vision, it is the unveiling of Jesus. In the second vision, it is the unveiling of the throne of God and God's rule over history and creation, which is the big one in the middle. In the third vision, it is the unveiling of the harlots, which is not the easiest thing to. Think. Wow! I want to spend lots of time thinking about how she's unveiled. But that's what that's what he says. Like, I want to come and show you. Look at this: the unveiling of the prostitute, and then the fourth vision is the unveiling of the bride. And then, of course, there is a, a conclusion and an introduction that bookend the book. Which most people—that's not controversial. Right? You read the first few and the last few verses, you can see that. But that means that I'm really seeing the book as four visions, and in each vision there is an. I was in the spirit, and I saw, and this is what was unveiled to me. That's the. Those are the big. That's the big. The meta markers, if you like. But within those four visions, most of them have then got a whole load, of, particularly the, middle, the, the big second vision, have got a whole load of sevens, which I'm then representing, obviously, by running vertically. And some of them are very obvious, like there is seven letters. Um, some of them are less obvious, like the vision of Jesus is sevenfold as well. And we'll see, there are a lot of sevens. If you're one of those people who's sceptical about numbers in the Bible having any significance, Revelation will quickly give you a, a bit of a shake because although there might be some weirdnesses to it, Revelation, is, the numbers are, as you I'm sure know, deeply significant and usually very obviously deliberate. Um, but so you have seven letters. You have the heavenly throne room vision, which in some ways is this sort of long setup for the ruler. It establishes the theological principle of this central vision, which is that God is sovereign over all things through the Lamb. And then, of course, after that, though, there is a sequence of almost unbroken sevens for the whole, of the, rest of the, vi- uh, the whole of the rest of the vision. Seven seals, like that, seven trumpets, seven visions. And the seven visions are not numbered like the other three, but there are still seven of them, and you can see them there. And then the seven bowls. And we will come back to some of the correspondences in a moment. Then vision three, you have, again, seven visions here. Following the overthrow of Babylon, which is quite a long section, that obviously the beast is described, the harlot is described, then the overthrow of Babylon is described, then the celebratory song is described, the Handel's Messiah Hallelujah chorus. And then at the but at the if you if you then stop the tape there and then say what happens after the overthrow of Babylon, you then have seven events taking place there, they're not marked, I'm not numbered either, and I would happily. Blur the lines there, and somebody goes, Oh, well, I think this vision's a bit longer. That's there's not as clear, but I think there are. They're still there. And then, of course, the mountain, and there are sevens in those in there as well, but less significantly so for the structure. So I think you have four visions, and each vision has got a bunch of sevens, particularly the middle one. And then if you see them mapped out like this, you'd also see that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls have a lot of affinities between them in what is going on in each case. The seventh is the most obvious one. Right, the seventh, the silence in heaven for at least half an hour, for about half an hour. And funnily enough, we were just talking before the, you know, before we started just now. We were talking about actually on Sunday preaching Revelation 17 and 18, and it was this extraordinary thing that happened in one of our meetings where there was, I mean, it wasn't half an hour, but it was silence for what do we think, five, six, seven, eight minutes, punctuated. There was somebody, the meeting leader, tried to, you know, pray and bring things, and then it just carried on in silence There's people standing there for a long time. And it, sometimes there's that sort of, oh it's, it's like a, a, it's a, in Revelation it functions like a Sabbath rest, but there is sometimes just a sense of silence before the things of God that kicks off. And it happens to have happened in one of our sites on Sundays. Beautiful moment. But the silence and the temple revelation and then the unveiling of the sanctuary and the unveiling of the temple, that's a pretty clear seventh day theme, right? So the seventh day of rest and worship using the days of creation. I, some of you will go, oh no, I don't buy that. Well, you're, going to buy, you're not going to buy a lot of things over the next few days because one of the, to me that's one of the low-hanging fruits that there is a Sabbath 7th here. If you're sceptical of that, you're going to have fun in the next couple of days. You'll be throwing things at pictures of me later. Um, but also there are a lot of overlaps in, even in, in the unveiling of some of the seals, trumpets and the bowls. So there is, I think, you know, earth, earth, sea, sea, rivers, rivers, heavens, sun. You see some you know, some, over, some overlap there, and when you read through the trumpets and the bowls, you'd see a lot of similarities. You'd notice, for instance, that the seals, a quarter of things get destroyed in the seals, and then a third of things get destroyed in the trumpets, and then everything gets destroyed in the bowls. It's like an intensification of judgment. So the sevens are not just in isolation. They're meant to be mapped onto one another, and almost like when you put an acetate over an acetate, you can see more of both. Um, some of you smirking because you remember acetates, and some of you going, what's an acetate? Um, so I think there are overlaps and connections here as well within those visions. But the main thing to bear in mind here structurally is to say four visions and sevens running through the visions. Just a nice little tidbit at the end though, which I really like. Some of you read the footnote. I really love it. John's, this is a light heartism, but I think it's great. John's visions go chronologically backwards through Israel's history. So they start in exile on Patmos. And then they go from there to the temple. And they go from there to the wilderness. And they go from there to a great high mountain where Moses meets God. And it's as if the whole structure of Revelation is saying, "Behold, I am making all things new." Just working back through Israel's story, saying God is renewing everything. Which I love that as a <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like me doing it in a nice font, isn't it? It's like oh, it sounds nice. Is it plausible? Who knows? Um, yeah, it, the. the That the vision—if you go through these four visions, right—the capitalized words at the top, where you have John, John is in exile at the start, right, which is at the end of Israel's story, and then there is the heavenly temple, which is the next bit in Israel's story, and then there is the wilderness, which is the bit before that in Israel's story, and then there is the mountain, which is where Israel as a nation begins. So Israel, if you were to map out the topography of Israel's story, you'd say it begins, as a nation, it begins on a mountain, then they spend time in a wilderness, then they spend time in a land of rest with a temple, and then they spend time in exile. And John's vision goes the exact opposite way around, un- unpicking the whole thing, as if to say, I'm making all things new. Take it or leave it, but I think it's nice. I'm with Howard, I suppose. Yeah, I'd like to think that's right. Yeah? Um, so, having set all of that up on a page, let's have any let's have a little bit of questions back and forth to sort of clarify that. This is a structure um, that I will return back to, and we'll probably reappear on this page a few times in the sessions just to try and get our heads around what's going on. But any any kind of questions for clarification, obviously disagreements, fine too. But anybody still going? Okay, help me understand what you mean there. Any any questions? Um, I, that's a good question. So the question was, did you have the view that you have now of Revelation before you read Lightheart's book? Um, I think in outline, kind of, but in many, many of the specifics, no. And I, and I still don't agree with a lot of the specifics in his book either. I think, so some, the point I just made about going backwards through, of course I didn't have, I'd never noticed that. Um, I think the, the four central visions... I hadn't. I just never done any any analysis on Revelation trying to try and see how do how would I bring the structure together. So the at once I was in the spirit and I saw. I didn't have that before I read. I think he showed it, and once I saw it, I went that that to me it just looked very clear, very quickly. I went that's obviously that verbal marker. It's like when you see in Matthew and when Jesus had finished saying these things, you go oh, there's five big books like the five books of torah jesus has finished teaching like but until someone or luke you know he goes then jerusalem then judea Samaria, then and each time he puts a little marker in the book you see it and you go yeah that's obviously the structure i think but but i think the the i was probably more idealist than preterist and i've now become peterist i suppose (laughs) lightheart has convinced me that i think a lot of the symbols are more closely tied to the first century than i initially thought yeah good question other questions yeah, Steve. The, the letters to the seven churches seem very, very different from the apocalyptic type like, literature. Yes. Do you feel that they are, all, they're all obviously the same place, but do they link into the acetopes going on to each other? Yeah, so the, the question is do the, the letters to the seven churches seem very different in form to much of the, the, the more visionary stuff later? Um, what do you do with that, and do you think that they? overlay onto the 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 sevens overlay like the others do um i think the answer for me no i I think the seven letters the genre is deliberately switching i think um i think obviously you know the the whole book hangs together in a literary structural point of view incredibly beautifully like it's an amazing literary composition but i don't think that we're supposed to for instance map the sixth letter onto the sixth seal in the way that we map the sixth seal onto the sixth bowl. i don't think that's true no um, but I think this, obviously, the sevenness is is still key, and and interestingly, you, you, as we'll see tomorrow, characters get introduced in these seven letters that will reappear much later in the visions. Um, so you you got your Jezebel and your Balaam and Balak appearing in the letters, and then you think, "Hey, on I've got a false prophet and a false you know I've got a false beast supported by a false prophet speaking lies about him. That's a very Balaam Balak thing. I've got a, a, a harlot like queen who is thinking that she can." Destroy the people of God and drink their blood. That's very Jezebel like. I've met Jezebel, but do you see what I mean? So there's a lot more connections than you think when you notice them, but I don't think you're supposed to map letter five onto bowl five or anything like that, no. Other questions? Johnny? How do you link together the fact that it's as a vision, but also it's incredibly detailed you think Oh, yeah. So from a compos- composition point of view, yeah. So how do you. How do you link, if, if this is a vision and yet it's been written with this level of literary elegance and structure, how do you square those? That, um, you're, yeah, you're an, you're an arts, prophetic y, artsy guy who likes things done well. So you will quickly, I imagine, go, yes, I think that's, I hope you'll think, I think that's true. But I quite often get asked that question when it comes to almost literary patterns in any part of the Bible, particularly in charismatic contexts, where I think people think if this is prophetic, it must have been spontaneous. That's quite a strong, I think that's quite a strong current that people, I don't know where it comes from, but I think it's quite common that people think Isaiah couldn't possibly have intended that artistry because he couldn't have just made it up on the fly if he was planning all of that stuff. And I just reject the premise. I say, no, I don't think that for something to be prophetic means it has to have been spontaneously off the top of his head written at all. Um, in fact, I think most prophetic books in the Bible are written with far more literary artistry and structure and preparation than some of the other books are. In fact, I think if you're going to make a case for any kind of biblical writing being on the fly, I think you'd say it's some of the letters of Paul, where he literally seems to change his mind. You know, actually, no. Come to think of it, I didn't baptize anybody. Oh yeah, I kind of did, but no one else. You know, like really, sort of. On, he's writing it so spontaneously that he's changing his mind in the text. Whereas I think some of the prophetic books are written with an artistry and beauty that I don't think gets touched anywhere else in the canon. And I think Revelation is a classic example of that. So I, in that sense, I think, yes, it's a, I think he's seeing it all. But I think the way that he's packaged what he's seeing and narrating what he's seeing, is both reflecting the fact that the visions do take this shape. I don't think he's imposing that structure onto visions. I think he's, he did see visions in sevens. Um, and God gave him the visions in sevens because he's trying to make points about the way that the Sabbath week is being reflected in the order of creation and all kinds of other things. So I'm not saying John is looking at a mishmash and then trying to impose a very rigid four by seven structure on it. I think that's what he saw. And he had four visions and the visions took the f- a seven-like form multiple times to help him remember them. And we do the same thing today, don't we? We, you know, we package things. Most of us preach, or many of us are preaching threes quite a lot because it's memorable. And... I always prefer a seven to a six or an eight if I'm teaching because it's a better number to make people to, to stick. So I think that's what's happening. I think God's giving them to him in sevens and he's writing them down that way too. Uh, would would other, excluding nutty commentators, amongst whom I presume you're including me, um, would the, would anybody else go with this structure, and if not, why? That's basically the question, yeah? yeah. Um, I don't, by the way, this is, I, I don't think any, this is me, right? I'm not blaming this on I'm not giving this to any, anybody. No, 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 I, I don't want you to think that this has been taken from someone else. Like, obviously, the four vision thing is a light heart point which I'm sure he's not the only person to have said it but that's where I first read it um, but the whole structure like that is this diagram is me so I'm not trying to hold anyone else accountable for it um, we, will, we will ask our special guest what they think when they join us on Thursday um, but I, I don't I think that broadly speaking if you read through the contents summaries, the pages in the the sort of, even sometimes the contents page of a commentary as a way of structurally analysing the book, usually that's what they do, you'll find the introduction, the conclusion, the heavenly throne room and all of the sevens, maybe that one less so, to be honest, but the others, you'd find them all mapped out like that. But some of them wouldn't use the four visions as an overarching organising structure and some of them would. So I don't think you'd get many people who would say that's a ridiculous approach and I think most of them would say introduction, conclusion, lots of sevens um, but the two clear bits of the text that are not in sevens are that bit there and that bit there. The, the throne room and the fall of Babylon. Um, so I don't, think most, I don't think there'd be many of these guys who would go, that's nonsense. Um, no. In fact, I'd be surprised if any of them did. Um, but there would be you know, room for negotiation on various bits and bobs. Simeon. Yeah. and the other divisions were a bit more smurged. Smurged. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a great word. Smurged, uh, smudged and merged. Yes, smudged and merged together. Yes, that's good. Um, so, yeah, so the question is, do you think the four visions simply reflect the w- John got these in four distinct times, or are we to smurge visions two, three, and four? Um, I actually, I haven't thought about it from a point of view of time. I haven't really thought... I think if he gets all of this in one day, he's had a difficult day. Um, I think, you know, how am I supposed to remember all of that? Um, And obviously, never having had an apocalyptic experience of this nature, I think it actually... I'm not not only being facetious, actually. I think it would be very hard to describe what it was like. I I think you get, I think, dreams... I've had probably two or three dreams dreams which I think of as prophetic dreams in my life. And there's something quite timeless about them. You just don't know. Like, and to be honest, dreams are like that now, aren't they? You know that scientists, or some, I think, would tell you sometimes that dream actually only took you a few seconds, but it felt like you were in it for hours. And I wonder if it's like that. Um, but as to how we're to unbundle them, I don't know. John has clearly presented them in a very continuous fashion, particularly, as you say, Chapter 16 runs into Chapter 17 very smoothly. I think there's a much more of a break in Chapter 21 I think where he says, now, come, let me show you the bride, the wife, and the lamb. There's a sort of ah, sigh of relief thing. I've shown you all of this. Now, let me show you the star of the show. I think it's a beautiful, um, you know, sailor, if you like. Um, but I, And I think there is a clear break between chapter 3 and chapter 4, although even then, they're literally stitched together very closely. But I'd, I'd accept what you're saying. I think Chapter Vision 2 and Vision 3 run one into the other quite closely. And actually, I think Vision 3 shows us what the end of Vision 2 is trying to tell us. But we'll have to, we'll have to wait till we get there, I think. We've got time for maybe one other question, if there is one. Yeah. Yes. Can I comment on how I date the book as a preterist? So I'm... So I'm perhaps a little unusual on this, at least at a sort of personal level. I am very happy with the idea that the, the dram, most of the dra- dramatic narrative in, in the central vision is set in the run-up to the destruction of Jerusalem, and yet it could, I don't think that means it has, the book has to have been written in the 60s. So I would be happy with that drama taking place in the, in the 60s, and I'm even as to whether it's written, written in... The two main views are it's written in the 60s or it's written in the 90s. And I'd be happy with it being written in the 90s even if it's describing events in the 60s because I don't think the, the, don't think the vision and its purpose falls if it is if it's describing events that are in the recent past. Personally. Now, Lightheart would be totally different on that. He would say, no, no, no. If this isn't prophetic, then it's not reassuring. And I can see why he says that. And I'm fine with it being written in the 60s as well. But... Um, so Ian Paul would say one of the major arguments for this not being about the fall of Jerusalem is that it can't have been written in the 60s for various reasons arguments he'd give and therefore it, if it's written in the 90s it can't be about Jerusalem and I, I don't think that's true I, I'm not persuaded by that I, th- I, think, I think Luke's gospel is obviously as a gospel as a text is written in the 80s but I think the, that, that doesn't mean that it's not speaking prophetically when it describes the fall of Jerusalem in chapter 21. And I think the same for me is true here, actually. So but that's a, that is, yeah, to pick up your question, which I'll try and come back to again and again, how weird is what you're saying? The view I hold is weird. Yeah, there, so most people would line up more emphatically, yeah, I'm preterist, and it's written before AD 70, or I'm not preterist, and it's not. Whereas I, I'm mixing and matching there, and that is unusual, I think. Yes, Yeah. so the question is is it, sorry I'm repeating the questions because it's being recorded, That's the, I, I know it feels a bit, you might be able to hear it down anyway um, so the question is, don't you think that the, the objection has some strength to say, hang on, if this book is being written as a warning to believers about what's going to happen, but it was all happening 20 years ago do you, don't you think that that's a you know, pretty compelling argument, and I think on balance I still, I do, I think it's more likely to be written in the 60s than in the 90s and I tend to read it that way but I don't think it's I don't think it loses its power if you have Preterist mixed in, because I'm not reading it as a pure Preterist, you see. I'm reading it as a Preterist idealist fudge. And therefore I think that if this is referring to recent events in the lives of the believers that know exactly who these people are, they know that that's Nero and they know this, but they also know that this is referring to the whole structure of the Roman Empire, which is going to be with us for another 200 years, and we're going to face the same thing. In fact, we're going to face it arguably more under Decius 200 years later than we did under Nero, and at least as much under Domitian, then it still speaks very powerfully with exactly the same warnings. So I can, I can foresee a way you could read it, and I'd kind of, I'm probably 70-30 for reading it written in the 60s versus written in the 90s, but I don't think it collapses if you set it in the 90s, personally. Dave King. And then we'll stop. The word soon loses its merit if it's looking backwards. Yeah, sure. The word soon. So that, sorry, the so, yeah, comment being the word soon loses its, loses its um, power if it's re- reading backwards. And I th- I think, and this is again, it's like, well, w- which bits of the story are you reading with the soon? Because obviously, the end of the book, the I'm coming, behold, I'm coming soon, I think almost every interpreter is going to read that as referring to a different reality to. The, the soon which might be referring to the fall of jerusalem or whatever so in some ways you have that problem whoever you are i think now i think lightheart i think would read even chapter 22 as referring to i am coming soon to bring about everything that's taking place of the fall of jerusalem but at that point of course i don't i don't agree with him so i don't worry that that's therefore jeopardizing the dating of the book because i think yeah I'm, i i'm not going to read chapter 22 as referring to the, the fall of jerusalem um and some, I think, to be honest, I haven't asked, but Tom Wright might do that, given his dating of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. So maybe there are others who do, but that's, that's a bridge too far for me. Okay, let's, uh, let's break, and we'll start the next session at 6.